And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. How hard it is to get even one Michelin star and how that system works. Chefs live and die by the Michelin Guide, especially European chefs, especially fine dining. Quite literally, people have committed suicide. I can name you five chefs that have committed suicide in the last 20 years from losing a star. Today, my guest is Chef Dale McKay. Originally from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, McKay's culinary career began as a fry cook in Vancouver, BC. He then moved to London, England, where he began working at Gordon Ramsay's Claridge's Restaurant. He eventually returned to Vancouver to become the executive chef at Daniel Balud's Lumiere Restaurant, where the restaurant was awarded the AAA Five Diamond Award under his direction. After winning Top Chef Canada and starting his own Vancouver restaurant, McKay returned to his hometown where he founded the Grassroots Restaurant Group. Working in his restaurants and around Gordon, what did that teach you? Focus and diligence. I've never seen somebody so focused on a specific goal or a number of goals. There's no point have I ever come up with an excuse that was good enough for him. He never really yelled like on television in the sense of just a yell to make a show. He couldn't understand how the fuck you aren't perfect. Why did you not take all those steps to make sure that you didn't screw this up? How do you feel about the trends of celebrity chefs? You know, I, I think it's all. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Now, the HubSpot Podcast Network has incredible podcasts like My First Million, hosted by Sam Parr and Sean Purry. They interview some of the most incredible business leaders, Alex Hermosi, Sophia Amoruso, Hassan Minhaj, who share their journey to success and how they made their first million. On a recent episode, they featured the acquired podcast hosts, Ben Gilbert and David Rosenthal, to discuss how they scaled their multi-million dollar podcast. Don't sleep on My First Million. If you want to get inspired, if you want to learn from the best, you got to tune in to My First Million wherever you listen to your podcast. Today, my guest is Chef Dale McKay. Originally from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, McKay's culinary career began as a fry cook in Vancouver, BC. He then moved to London, England, where he began working at Gordon Ramsay's Claridge's Restaurant, followed by stints in other Michelin-starred Ramsay restaurants in London, Tokyo, and New York City. He eventually returned to Vancouver to become the executive chef at Daniel Balud's Lumiere Restaurant, where the restaurant was awarded the AAA Five Diamond Award under his direction. After winning Top Chef Canada and starting his own Vancouver restaurant, McKay returned to his hometown where he founded the Grassroots Restaurant Group with Christopher Cho and Nathan Guggenheimer. With this group, he's opened restaurants in Western Canada, including Avenue, Aiden Kitchen and Bar, Dojo, Little Grouse on the Prairie, and Sticks and Stones. In addition to his Top Chef Canada win in 2011, Dale McKay has many more accolades to his name, including being named a Western Living Foodie of the Year in 2014, while Aiden made Air Canada's En Route Magazine's Top 10 Best New Restaurants list, won En Route's People's Choice Awards for Canada's Best New Restaurants, and was on VK.ca's Top 50 Restaurants in Canada list in 2014 to 2016. 
I would say seeing a documentary. Uh, I saw a documentary called Boiling Point uh, when I was 19 years old. Um, I was given a VHS videotape from somebody that I had worked with at the time. It was really, I was working in my first real good restaurant, I would say good in the sense of like making everything from scratch, that kind of stuff. It was in Whistler, BC. Uh, I got this VHS. I took it home, watched it, and watched. It was about Gordon Ramsay going for his three Michelin stars. He was 32 at the time. He was trying to become the youngest chef ever to get three Michelin stars. I saw this documentary was put on by the BBC and uh, it was like the most intense thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was, it was like yelling and it, 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 I just felt like I was in a completely different world. You know, I felt like I had been some in some kitchens and stuff, but seeing the intensity and seeing the level that these people were at, I just wanted it so bad. Uh, and so actually literally three and a half weeks later, I, I, I was living in England. So I saw that documentary and I applied for a visa within the week. My mom helped me apply for the visa and I got it back in three weeks and I, 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 I had a Lonely Planet book because this is like 99. And so I booked a hostel through Lonely Planet book and stuff and uh, booked it for four days and, and showed up at his doorstep. So I, with that, with, you know, I feel like I would have done similar, but that documentary just kind of changed my course. I was, I never thought I would just move to England at 19 and, and that's just kind of what I did. So th that, that documentary changed my life for sure. <laughs> And okay, so when when you that's amazing. And I, I also love a similar thread between everybody that achieves anything is just this yeah. massive action. And it's almost like you throw like caution to the wind, you just go for it. And that's obviously like a huge career shift. So before that, you were you I mean, the story is you worked as a fry cook, and you were probably doing some small, uh, much smaller jobs. Um, so what is the experience um, actually throwing yourself into cooking, culinary arts as a profession? Because I, I bet before that video, I'm sure there was still ideas of what else or what if, or if I go different directions, right? It's not like you have a set career path, but now this video solidifies it, it probably expedited yeah. the time frame in which you took that step. So what is the career path of, of a chef, of somebody that wants to be successful in this industry? Do y'all have to go over to London, England? Um, are there other ways to do it? I think there's there's a few paths, but I kind of feel like I almost snuck through the back door for for the the level that I kind of managed to get to, and and the places that I managed to be the chef of, and and that kind of thing, and working for who I've worked for and stuff. I I I left school at 14. I quit school when I was 14 years old. Um, I had a couple classes at grade nine, and then I just left school and I moved across the country to to Vancouver, BC, when I was 15. On my actually, my on my 15th birthday, I bought a, a standby ticket when they still did standby tickets. Flew across to to Vancouver, and then I basically was kind of I had my brothers that were living in Vancouver, but I was somewhat on my own, and so. Um, I, I'll start by saying I'm dyslexic. I, I do a lot of work with Dyslexia Canada as well. I'm an ambassador for them. I'm very proud of it nowadays. Back then, it's a very different situation. So I didn't feel like I definitely didn't have much career options. You know, I, I, I was aggressive in the sense of ambitious and I wanted to be something and I had a huge chip on my shoulder in the sense of I was willing to outwork everybody do that. So when I, I was washing dishes because I virtually had no other option, you know, there's not a lot of jobs out there for 15 or 16 year old dropouts. And so I, I, I was washing dishes at a chain called Red Robin. I'm not sure if you know Red Robin, uh, but uh, it's a burger, burger and clocks and greens. And as they, they call them there and somebody didn't show up to work one day uh, and they put me online and and I honestly from that day forward I knew I was going to be a chef and I wanted to be a chef it was just a matter of me you know 15 or 16 year old you know dyslexic kid that really was partying a lot and you know doing a lot of you know everything basically just just kind of finding his way and then 
So um, that documentary really kind of gave me the, you know, I was never scared to just throw, obviously I moved across the country when I was 15. I wasn't scared to, to kind of put myself in awkward situations. Yeah. But I think that documentary gave me the thought of like, if I can go there and I can be one of these people, I could do, you know, um, one year in Canada is like, I mean, I could do one year in England, it would be like five years in Canada. That's the way I saw it. I saw it. This is like going jumping into the army. This is jumping into like the highest level of training possible. So, um, yeah, I, I, I always felt, I think it helped me that I always felt like this is all I had. <laughs> there was no other option. This was all, this is what yeah. you had. So put every piece of yeah. energy and thought and, and effort into it. And, and when I moved to England, uh, it was almost like a, um, like a sweet release in the sense of I didn't, I didn't care about anything else. I didn't, nothing else mattered. It was only about being in that kitchen 16, 17 hours a day, learning everything I could do. Uh, you know, I, I'm someone, and I'm sure, you know, you interview a ton of people that like, I, I would always factor in every little thing I possibly could every day. You know, um, what I, you know, I was having the same containers. I always, I'd hide pots inside of ovens overnight. I would do anything I could to make my day smoother to I, so I could look that much better and I could advance myself that much quicker. And so I always looked at it. I always looked at myself as like the, the blue collar guy that, you know, I, I was working with all these people that went to, you know, culinary schools and all these different things and, 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 and trained and did all these stages all over the world when I was just that kind of, I think, rough and kind of <laughs> i just hustled you, yeah you just hustled you, you hustled yeah. you you figured yeah and 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 how was how were you received in london when when you you came over on a whim like i'm sure that someone was looking at this kid coming from canada like yeah you know, and not a lot of no experience really very i mean some experience in the sense of being kitchens but never at gordon ramsay level i mean when i joined gordon he had his his restaurant was number one in the world. He was he was literally the the the, per, the, the top restaurant in the world. So um, showing up there, I was just like, I kind of thought to myself, if I can hang in there and I can work 16, 17 hours a day, they're gonna let me be here. You know, you know, and whether I'm picking herbs or I'm on the line, they're gonna let me do it. I is the way I kind of thought. So I I, I didn't try to send my resume. I didn't try because I had a crap resume. I had nothing going for myself in that sense. I didn't go to school. So I showed up and I knocked on the door and I asked for a job and they said, come back tomorrow for a stage. And you know, which is a stage in our world is essentially an unpaid day or week or month or however long that may be to trial. And so I went there and I picked langoustines. They're like shrimp uh, for 10 hours. And then, and then I think I cleaned for the rest of the time and they gave me a job. And so, um, I, I was willing to scrap and fight anybody. And so, and I, and I did, like, I, I could tell you, like, it was so aggressive and so competitive that you, if you could have a friend in the kitchen, it was great because then you could, you could kind of team up on people and that's how, how competitive it was. Um, you had to kind of mark your territory, like you're like a dog, you know, and if anybody came in your station, you'd have to, you know, fight back and, and bark back. And, and this is all while, you know, being kind of yelled at by Gordon and by everybody else. So it was usually the most intense kind of situation I think I'd ever be in. It's exhausting, but exhilarating. And, and yeah. 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 So when, so you, so, I mean, when, when you, when you see the Gordon Ramsay style of leadership on, on TV and, I think that that's eye-opening for a lot of people because I don't think a lot of people came up in their career with leaders, yeah. bosses like that. I mean, that's a very high-pressure environment. But it sounds like that that's the that's not just a, a facade. That's the way the kitchen. That's the way a kitchen is, and the highest, most prolific, um, uh, you know, uh, restaurants in the world. And that's just something that you have to dive into head first and to deal with 
to sort of carve out your spot in the industry. And if you can do that for, you know, X period of time and you have the passion to sort of persevere, that's yeah. who sort of rises to the top. Yeah. And especially in the time, I would say, you know, in the 2000s and early kind of late 90s to kind of mid 2000s, I, I would say it was probably the, the hardest core of in all kitchens. There was, you know, it was modernized, but at the same time, yeah. there wasn't many labor laws being touched or kind of like in there. You you can't even like I was just in England for a couple of months and yeah. they don't work quite late the hours that we used to at that time because, you know, the government has stepped in and, and realized that there's been too many people obviously complaining about these kind of things. But from the better question, a leadership standpoint, I needed that kind of leadership, you know, I kind of thrived in that situation because I love discipline and I love structure. Um, and I was, you know, again, young and, and just needed some guidance and, and needed that. So uh, I always looked at it like a boot camp. There's a reason why, you know, armies send people to boot camp. It's to get them in the right frame of mind and put them under pressure and see how that they can perform under pressure. And if you can perform your best well being under extreme pressure, then I would think everything else in the, you know, after that's going to be extremely easy. And I think there's like, there's that in all, you know, walks of life from musicians to athletes to tr day traders to you know all those kind of people that, that have to deal with that kind of pressure yeah. and so i love that stuff like i when i'm when i'm even nowadays when you know at my bigger restaurant and it's a heaving service and you've got you know eight cooks kind of going and you kind of feel like almost like a captain of a ship and you're kind of pushing resources all around and you're kind of seeing where people are faltering and stuff and so um i love that kind of situation and i love the tensity especially when i was that young um not everybody deals with it well and it's not for everybody and i don't even really think it's it's net totally necessary anymore you know i think there's there's amazing some of the best kitchens in the world aren't necessarily operating like that anymore um but it can't be all sunshines we're in you know it can't be all like rub your back and say you're you're going to do better next time because it's not about that you know and when when you're yeah. trying to be the best when you are the best restaurant in the world it's it's a defending game it's not even a it's one herb that's off you know or one um smudge in the plates can actually take you down a notch and so you have you know people that don't understand that type of intensity or that type of focus they don't they're not going to get it um, but when you spend 18 hours a day doing something that you absolutely love and some guy, some guy comes in and fucks it all up on the last minute, <laughs> you know, there's going to yeah. be some, some things to be said. Yeah. That, that's when, that's when there's repercussions. That's when you get, that's when you get why yeah. the pressure exists. And I guess for people that are listening that, that don't understand the world of, of Michelin star and don't understand the, the level that you're playing at, um, I guess it'd be good to sort of tee up what that means. Uh, to draw a parallel, draw a comparison, maybe speak to how hard it is to get even one Michelin star and how that system works, just to sort of show yeah. the level that you're playing at. And that'll sort of give some context for the rest of the, for the rest you of the You know, time. chefs, chefs live and die by the Michelin guard guide, especially European chefs, especially um, fine dining. You know, it's, it's it, quite literally people have committed suicide. I'll, I can name you five chefs that have committed suicide in the last 20 years from losing a star. Because once you get, you know, Marco Pirawhite, who's a great chef, an English chef, you know, and he always explained, you know, first, you know, your first two stars or it's a, it's, you can be creative and, and, and aggressive and it's an offense, but then after you get to the top, it's pure defense. And, and so you're, you're just trying to hold on that status. And I mean, it, it literally is like winning an Oscar for, 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 a, for an actor, you know, it's, it's only the elite of the elite is going to ever hold that title um and it's all encompassing and again it's uh it financially reputation pride 
all of it, you know, and, and so it, it really is, um, it, it's everything to them. I, I, I'm glad that I've, I never really got that fever, to be honest with you, and, and, and being a Canadian chef, yeah. I, I understood it when I was in it, and I appreciated it, and, I, and I, I feel like I held myself and my team to the same standard when I first got back to Canada when I was doing specifically fine dining, and I was, uh, at the time, I was the youngest uh, grand chef in the world for Relais and Chateau, which is a, a, a kind of the similar kind of thing as, as uh, Michelin, but it's, it's specifically for the chef, not for the restaurant, so I was awarded grand chef at 27 which was a massive accomplishment for me and that that was enough for me but um because they do an inspection thing and 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 that's part of um the michelin thing is if you've ever watched you know the, the documentary boiling point too a lot of it is, is trying to figure out when these inspectors are coming in you know you've got a, a list of names you've got a list of phone numbers you have your staff checking every day back checking all these phone numbers you you know you have it, it, it's it's not just about you hoping you you have to focus that hard to try to make it happen. Um, it's 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 beyond intense. It is no, I, I I totally appreciate it because I mean, if you look at if you look at <laughs> if you look at the 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 level of scrutiny that restaurant, I think that it's also not as prevalent in North America obviously yeah. as it is in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. But if you if you've ever been to a Michelin star restaurant literally anywhere, it's like the level that they compete at is mm-hmm. is absurd. I mean, and it, it it extends far beyond just like the food that you eat or the presentation. I mean, it's a service. It's the it's everything. the entirety of the experience. The bathrooms, right? the um, purse stools, yeah. everything. Yeah. 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 And every, absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, and it can all be taken away yeah. very, very quickly from one inspector. And that's, and that's why you have to treat every single person to that level. And, you know, you play little games, like when you think there's an inspector in the room, you'll start sending, like you want to send, you want to make sure that they have everything you want them to have. And so, you know, Gordon taught me, you taught me a lot about other little things. So like you can't treat them special. So you start treating everybody around them special. So they don't realize. So you send an extra course to everybody around. You do all those kind of little things and and you just kind of, yeah, it's, it's a whole playbook just to kind of get into that, that Mm -hmm. kind of graces. And, and, you know, working, working in his restaurants and, and around Gordon, what did that teach you? And what did you take from that? for your own career, your own restaurants. Let's sort of walk through that. Cause I mean, how long were you actually working in his restaurants? What, before you started your, your own thing? Uh, I was with him for about seven years total. Um, I, I was with him for just over three years or no, about three years in England. I was with him two years in Japan and then two years in, in New York. Um, so I managed to, I think I opened up eight restaurants for him total. Um, when I got, when I joined him, I was at the perfect time kind of, uh, when he had one restaurant and then from there kind of, there was about eight of us that were kind of his core group that kind of grew and, 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 and shaped it. I'm sorry. What was your question? I, I, I sometimes rant and then I, no, I, no, the, the, no, no, it, it's, no, I appreciate it. It, it. I appreciate the context, but it was the, 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 the lessons and the experience yeah, so, I'm sorry. from working with him over that seven years. Yeah. I, for, for me, I would say, um, focus and diligence i've never i've never seen somebody so focused on on a specific goal or a, a number of goals and driven I've, and he you could never there's never an excuse there's at no point have i ever come up with an excuse that was good enough for him for anything you know there's no excuse for anything you know what he can't understand what i always respect about him is is when he was yelling at you he never really yelled like on television in the sense of just a yell to to make a show he he couldn't understand how the fuck you aren't perfect. Why did you not take all those steps yeah. to make sure that you didn't screw this up? And that I loved. I, I, I love that whole idea and concept of, of 
every day thinking about all the little steps that you can take to, to not let things happen. You know, it's the complacency of people that just go into work or go into whatever and just kind of the day kind of goes on. And if you do that, things are going to go wrong. But if you can kind of set your mind up every day to kind of eliminate steps and constantly, I used to time myself doing everything, uh, not because I was told to, because I wanted to see how much faster and how much more efficient I could get. And that was because from watching someone like Gordon, that was just so good at everything he seemed and everything, I just turned everything into a competition and he's very much kind of, I would say like that as well. And so I, I thrived to being around that. So, you know, focus and focus and no excuses, you know, it's, it's all on you. You, you take responsibility for everything. I love that. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll speak about how that sort of impacted what you've done with uh, the grassroots restaurant group. But I want to also um, some things that have happened in your career and also just general trends that I think you'd be good to comment on. So um, how do you feel about the trends of celebrity chefs um, and and chef competitions and building personal brands and how because how, that is relatively new in the industry too yeah you know i i think it's all positive you know i think there's going to be lots of chefs that kind of bitch about it or say or the, this and that i mean th there's absolutely chefs yeah. out there that have shows and that are, have restaurants and have these big you know celebrity chef lives that really are very good chefs there's absolutely lots of them you know what i mean there's there's also lots of musicians that are very good there's also lots of you know you know in any industry but I think the positives match away the negatives in the sense that we have platforms. Social media has given us a platform. Television has given us a platform. Um, we can possibly retire not <laughs> poor and 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 and, and, and exhausted. You know, you know, it's not. It's never really been a glamorous life. It's one of those jobs that that kind of hooks you and that you love and you kind of stick with it. You know, chefs in in traditionally have stayed in the kitchen till their 60s 70s even especially french chefs and european chefs it, it's something you kind of you just do forever um i don't want to do that you know i i, I don't want to be in the kitchen at 55 at eight o'clock at night i want to be at home enjoying you know my life and everything else and uh, as, as anyone should be after giving so many years or something absolutely right? you know you should aim for yeah and so um from the celebrity side of things i think it's it i i think it's only good for people. You know, if you watch say master chefs, kids, it's a, it's a sh great show. You see these kids, these kids have a crazy amount of knowledge. They're they're They know more about cooking than their parents. They're, they're so impressive. And it's because of celebrity chef. It's because of these shows. It's because of access of, of, of this, all this knowledge. They can go on YouTube or they can go on Instagram and watch people's reels of how to make all these dishes and stuff. So I, I think it's, it is very positive. Um, and, and it's giving us a platform and the ability to make more money, to be honest with you. Like I, I, I would say that I, you know, before the pandemic and when I was doing lots of events and different things, I would say that I, I it was always a strategic goal of mine, uh, to only, you know, my income to only be about 40 to 50% of my income coming from my, the restaurants and, and my, my wage mm -hmm. and the rest should be diversified into other things outside of my, uh, outside the restaurants. And whether that be still food related or not, that was always my goal. And I, I wouldn't be able to do that without being a celebrity chef, you know, without product endorsements and doing all those kind of things. So, and I actually really enjoy that work. You know, I, I I'm the corporate chef for a, a grocery chain co-op. I'm not sure if you've ever had them uh, out, out East. Uh, there's about 265 locations. So, you know, I'm, I feel very lucky. There's only, you know, a few chefs in each country that are going to get one of those jobs because it's for a mash, you know, a national grocery chain. So I develop food, I develop frozen food for them. I develop fresh food for them. I do recipes for them, for their website. So that kind of work, 
work wasn't around in in the 80s and 90s even in the 90s really and so and to me that that's a huge amount of my income and it also allows me to be in they wear my ap- they wear aprons with my name on it in the grocery stores i do events for them when they open stores they they do all that kind of stuff and um i think it's the way chefs also look at it too just like any an athlete's you know you know, doing endorsements for whatever kind of company, you know, I, I, I'm a, yeah. I'm a, I call myself a bit of a sellout. I'll, I'll endorse most things as long as I like it. And I think it's okay. <laughs> I'll be, well, if you believe in it, yeah, there's nothing you know wrong what I mean? with I've, that. I've I done, I've done commercials <laughs> for, for A&W. I've done, you know, things for, for blue cheese. I've done it, you know, they're, they're all things that I, I I'm okay with. And, you know, and if I can use my voice and I can make, it's a lot easier for me to make $10,000 with a, with a brand than it is, making burgers, you know what I mean? And so if, yeah. from, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur and, and celebrity chef or, or mostly an entrepreneur, then you have to kind of realize you got to, it's a lot easier making money writing a recipe than it is trying to cook for 50 people a night, every night, you know, and make that same profit. So uh, I, I celebrate that I, stuff. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, companies are under pressure right now. Pressure to get more leads, close deals faster, get better insights to create the best experience for their customers. See, a CRM can help, but not just any CRM. One that is easy to set up, intuitive to use, and customizable to the way you do business. Now that's where HubSpot comes in. HubSpot's CRM is an easy for everyone to use on day one solution. It helps teams be more productive. You can drag and drop your way to attention grabbing emails and landing pages. You can set up marketing automation to give every contact the white glove treatment plus AI-powered tools like Content Assistant mean less time spent on tedious manual tasks and more time for what matters, your customers. HubSpot CRM has all the tools you need to wow prospects, lock in deals, and improve customer service response times. Get started today for free at HubSpot.com. I, I, no, I, I fully agree with you. I think that as, as industries evolve and ways to make money evolve, I think that it's, it's silly to not take advantage of them, especially if it's like a net positive, if you can teach more people, if you can impact more people, yeah. because you have that celebrity stat. I mean, why, why wouldn't you really, totally. like you said, you're, you're raising, you're raising now another generation of kids that are wildly more competent yeah. in the kitchen than maybe some of their parents are, which yeah. is not really a bad thing. It's a, it's a positive hobby. No. And, and to, to reference to like the shows, like when I, when I being on top chef, which when I was on top chef Canada, that was 12 years ago now. And so between co-op, them having my aprons and doing recipes and, and kids tasting the recipes that the parents are making for them and then seeing and then kids, I have people coming up to me that are 22 now or 20 years old and saying, I watched you win Top Chef when I was 12 years old with my family and it was amazing and this and that kind of stuff. And so those shows have given me more relationships with people than any other than anything can i could have 10 of the best restaurants in canada that's not going to make that 20 year old remember watching me win that show and being emotional and, and following my journey through from week to week and so you can't i've always said you can't buy that kind of, kind of publicity i could i if i had two million dollars i still couldn't buy that because it's a connection yeah. that they're going to have for the rest of their lives and so when it comes to a birthday or a special day or anything they're going to come to my restaurants because they have that connection with me from television and from watching me be under pressure and then also seeing me in co-op and seeing in there so those things are actually much more beneficial to my actual businesses in in the long run than than really almost anything else. Now, speaking about social media, because if you're building a celebrity status, I mean, you're using social media, but there's 
other trends that where social media intersects with with culinary and i'm curious about where you see that because in the culinary industry there's a lot of obsession with instagrammable food mm -hmm. does that take away from traditional techniques traditional flavors does that jeopardize what a chef would actually want to create just to make something that looks appealing yeah i mean i think it goes to you know what i was saying before you know a lot of the some of those people that have got 200,000 or a million followers from doing Instagram food and that kind of stuff. And some of it, yeah. some of it is really nice and it is fun to watch. Um, I don't actually know how much those people actually make those dishes or not, but there are a huge amount of people online, including myself that like to watch those reels and actually, you know, and, and follow along. Um, I, I don't see them really doing any harm, you know, at the end of the day, I, are those recipes great and tried and tested? Probably not. It's more mostly for the gram, um, but uh, yeah. I, I don't really see it as a negative. I think more food is more food. It does definitely become harder for the good stuff to kind of punch out in front of the, the bad stuff because the fact that there's just so much. Yeah. I was on Instagram for 20 minutes today and I, I watched 30 reels from P and I was like, who's doing this? Who's doing that? Like, and, and it seems like everybody, everybody's doing it, you know? So uh, I think it is a trend. Uh, I, I filmed a bunch that I have coming out to in a strategic, more of a strategic way. And, and, and I'm doing um, some, some partnership posts with, with some, some kind of bigger accounts and things like that. Um, I like social media, but I don't love it. I, I, I'm a pretty outgoing person, but I don't really, I think my part of my problem is that I think that why do people care? I don't think someone cares what I'm doing today, you know? And so I, I don't, uh, you're in your own head though, dude, you, you're, you know? you're in your own head. People do care. <laughs> it's a, people love yeah, it. I know. I know. It's funny that way, you know? And I'm like, I'm doing this. I'm like, I'm probably going to post this. And I'm like, eh, someone doesn't really give a shit what I'm doing. I'm get you know, but maybe they do. Maybe I got to get, get a little bit more out. Um, and then I guess last question that I'm curious about, uh, in terms of the evolution of the culinary industry, um, there's different technologies that are used or are, are starting to be used, like 3D printing, uh, sous vide cooking. What is your opinion on that? Is that a positive, a negative? How does that impact the industry? You know, I think, you know, evolution of anything is great to to a point, but you don't want to lose sight, especially with food. You don't want to lose sight with what's 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 real and what what food's really about. And I think as a as a chef, you I, I at least I can speak for myself that you kind of go in arcs and, and you kind of come back. And I think it, I, I keep re referring to musicians and other thing, you know, the same, I think people are like that, you know, you have your period where you're all about, you know, the top of the fine dining or this and that, but then, you know, you come around and you kind of realize that food's really more about, you know, flavor and soul and, 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 and happiness and, and how it makes people feel and that kind of stuff. And I definitely learned that over the years. And, I, I enjoy cooking much more, cooking more casual food and, and, and casual generally means being a bit more traditional in, in technique and, and that kind of stuff and staying away from, you know, I, I definitely don't need to 3D print anything. You know, I, 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 I you know, I, I think we have amazing vegetables in Saskatchewan and amazing fruit and meat and I don't need to change that. I think that's the way I go more towards now. It's more about just having great products and great farm things uh and not doing that but then then, then to, to say sous vide has definitely changed the way that we can produce things if you use it in the right way uh you can you can get ahead of things you can change the texture of you know you can take a short rib and you can cook it for 60 hours and cut it like a steak but it'll still be kind of like super super tender like a braised short rib so there's there's there, when you use them in that kind of way, I think it's fantastic because it's kind of opening up your minds to textures in different ways. Um, but I think if you start 3D printing food 
that you don't need to, then maybe we're just kind of being <laughs> gluttonous. You're, you're, you're like almost commoditizing tradition to a point, but it's, yeah. it's not. I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. So, I mean, if it's for a net positive in the industry, if it's just to reduce expenses, if it's just to expedite, if it's just to make things cheaper, faster, quicker, that's not necessarily the the ethos of food. Yeah. And it, I, there was a, definitely a period of, I would say, a good five years kind of in before 2020 or I'd say kind of in the early tens that everything was being sous vide and everything was being like, I, I remember going into a kitchen and or who's kitchen. Anyway, the, the sous vide machine had gone down. They had no circulator and which means, and, and they, and they were backpacking everything from lamb to fish to beef to everything. And then they quickly realized that nobody in the kitchen knew how to fucking cook meat. Like, like they hadn't, these cooks had been there for six, yeah. eight me months or even two years. And there's been no put a pan on roast that piece of lamb, cook it in some butter, baste it, rest it to do all that. Because when you're soothing everything, it's basically, you take it out, you put it in there, the water, you take it out. And if you do sear it, it's already cooked perfectly. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. And so it does, I think new techniques like that take away from the soul and the actual, you're a cook, you need to cook, you know, if you can't cook a piece of meat, yeah. you're not a chef, you know? And so if you overutilize it, you, you do take away from your own training and your own, your own abilities. So I, I'm glad I grew up in the, in the way, the time period I grew up when we weren't doing any of that kind of stuff. It was just like, you know, when I was on a station at Gordon Ramsay's, I mean, at we'd have five different meats and four different birds on one station and you'd have to cook all those at once while listening and being yelled at. So, um, you know, sync goes back to the multitasking and under pressure. So, yeah, no. I, okay. So let's, let's speak about, um, building a restaurant empire. So, uh, talk about the transition from, um, I, and, and you were working in, in, in Ramsey's restaurant for, you said seven years, you opened up, uh, eight restaurants. Uh, when did grassroots restaurant group start? What was the impetus for that? Um, what was the idea that you wanted to do this? And, and the, and I guess the, the thesis for what type of restaurant and then eventually restaurants you wanted to start? Um, so, the first time I, I was, I went back to Vancouver and uh, I was working for a chef named Daniel Baloud there. So I'd opened up two restaurants for him there. Uh, he's an amazing chef out of New York. I, in my opinion, I think he's the best chef in the world. Um, and so we, we were running those two restaurants and then those restaurants were going to be closed or cease to exist at a certain point. It was right when I was one, winning top chef. And then I decided I was going to open my own restaurant because that was kind of the natural progression of, you know, being a chef and doing all that to be an entrepreneur. So um, I opened up a, a restaurant called Ensemble, which was in Vancouver. And it was the concept was essentially kind of trying to do fine dining, but in a more casual way, fine dining food, but more kind of casual feeling and more kind of upscale in that sense, um, which was good. And, and I was quite successful and we, we were making money and we we're doing quite well. And then I decided to open, I wanted to, you know, I, open up another restaurant pretty quickly after, which was a much bigger casual restaurant was, was a mistake. It, you know, the numbers, the numbers didn't work. Um, I learned early on, I, I, I've always been really lucky to have some good mentors and good accounting mentors. Um, and I, I learned early on, if the numbers don't work, then you don't have a business. And, and, and I, I, unfortunately, you know, one restaurant took down the other restaurant and, and I, I would say that I did a very mature thing, which, I'm quite still to this day quite proud of is that most chefs and most restaurants, as you'll, you'll see, 
if they, they're in trouble, you'll start seeing quality go down. You'll start seeing changes in the service. They'll start change, changing this. They'll stop paying their bills. So they'll try and save it. They'll try to they'll, save it. They'll try and, 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 save and, and realistically, if yeah, you're okay. if you're smart and you and you trust accounting and you trust numbers, you you, you you know six to eight months to a year out that you're not going to make it unless you can make some some very big changes. And in the restaurant industry, that's extremely hard. It takes months and months to change concepts or change things like that. And the writing was definitely on the wall. So I chose to be very upfront. I shut down the restaurants very publicly. I said, these are the reasons why I, I got over ambitious. My rent is too high. These are, these numbers don't work. And so I shut down those restaurants very publicly about it. And I, and I said, I'm going to, you know, choose to make a life decision. And I, I've been a single father. I hadn't mentioned this, but yet I was a single father to my son since he was, I guess, three and a half, four years old throughout my whole kind of career. And so he lived in with me in Japan, him and his mom. And then from there, I had custody him pretty much right after, after that when he was about three and a half years old. So um, I wanted him to grow up in Saskatchewan like I did. But we were in Vancouver and we were living, you know, downtown in Kitsilano. So I was choosing to shut down the restaurants. I said, okay, well, this is a perfect time to move back go to Saskatchewan, give my son, you know, the upbringing, I think he deserves more, which is a safe place. You jump on your bike, go down to the river, you know, kind of what I think made me the kind of person that I am was, was growing up there. So I wanted that for him. So I made the decision to go back there and open up a restaurant called Aiden Kitchen Bar, which is named after him. And, uh, and with great success. And I, you know, I, I, I've been extremely lucky that I had a lot of people that were willing to move their entire lives to Saskatchewan with me with never even being there. My business partner, Christopher Cho, who's one door down right now, we're in Mexico City together right now. Uh, he's been with me 15 years now and he moved his life to Saskatchewan and he's he's my business partner now and, and I hired him as a food runner at Lumiere actually. Um, so we moved to Saskatchewan, we opened up Aiden Kitchen Bar, very successful. We were uh, one of the best new restaurants in the country and you know financially we did you know, above, above my best case scenario, which was, which was amazing. Saskatchewan was in a really good boom at the time. I managed to pay back the entire investment to my investors and to, you know, uh, the partners and stuff like that, I think within 16 months, which is quite unheard of for, you know, I think we raised 1.2 million, which is incredible for a restaurant and especially in a small town like that. And then from there, you know, we just kind of kept deciding to do new concepts and, and, you know, we opened up, uh, you know, Little Grouse of the Prairie, which is a, a small Italian restaurant. Uh, my, my business partner is Korean uh, and I worked in Japan for a number of years. I love Japanese and, and Asian food in general. So then we opened up Sticks of Stones, which is an izakaya with sushi. So different concepts, you know, we don't want to ever re- keep redoing what we were doing. Um, and then... Regina uh, is just two hours away and I have family there. So we opened up two more there. And so it wasn't, I didn't necessarily say, okay, we're going to open up five restaurants over 10 years. But whenever I saw there was an opportunity and I felt like we could grow, uh, I would. I would say that I, I, I definitely struggled with overambition throughout my whole career, you know, and I think I've got that. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own cost and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed 
changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much, Indeed, for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Under control the last couple of years. And I think ambition is an amazing thing to have. But I also think it can cloud your judgment sometimes because you think that you can just work harder and it will just be better and it will work. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the case. And I keep referring to numbers and and. If the numbers don't work, you don't have a business. It doesn't matter how impassionate you are, how much you want it, or how much people tell you it's great. It doesn't matter. None of those things really matter in the business sense of things. Um, and so we even had a fail in there too. I had I opened up a pizza place um, that I thought was going to be amazing and that everyone was going to praise me for because we were using local flour and we were doing all these things and we were making delivery pizza, but it was just better. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah. you realize that People don't want to pay $35 that you need to charge for that pizza that they could just go to TJ's and get it for 18 or 12, you know, and so that concept didn't work. And and I, and I, again, same thing after eight months, I said, okay, we're going to keep losing money here. So we might as well just cut our losses and, and, and be, be upfront about it. You know, I, I've never, I, I honestly, and I, I know this is a cliche to say, but I honestly celebrate my losses way more than I celebrate my, my, my wins because my losses have always, I, I've always been okay with, with with losing and or from time to time because it's really kind of reflective of going like you blew it so you kind of you 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 were thinking 
yeah. you know, you really need to look at, at the overview here. Why are you doing this? Are you doing this for you? Are you doing this for to, to have one more restaurant or is this a financial thing? Is it, you know, all those kind of answers. So I feel like I'm in the best place ever now, or we are in the sense of our scope and our understanding of each restaurant. And, and, and each one has their own individual problems. So um, for me now, it's, it's, it's more of a food's easy. I always say cooking's easy. It, it really is. It's, it's, it's especially for really well-trained, but the food's the easy part. It's everything else that comes around it in, in the restaurant industry. It's in, and, and mostly people. And, and these days staff and people are the most challenging thing you could deal with. And I, and I, and I, I don't think the hospitality is exclusive to that. That's, that's just, I think people in general right now, the pandemic really, I think changed people's ideas and views on work and, and, grinding it out and, and want. So, uh, we struggle, we struggle now to, to, I think more now than we ever have to keep people employed and keep people motivated and keep people wanting to succeed. You know, um, I, I, I just always, I wanted to succeed so bad. I don't understand it when other people don't. So, <laughs> so it's, you know, I, I've had to learn, I think being a, a single father to my son changed me a lot too. And my son is very different than me. Like we're so similar, but He's, I'm a very intense person. I've always quite, into, I don't find myself that intense, but people find me intense. They've told me my entire life. Um, but he's a very calm and, and different kind of person. And so, and he doesn't deal well with like the Gordon Ramsay method of, of is not going to work with him. You know, yeah. I need to support him and understand him and, and make sure that he, he has what he needs to, to succeed. And me putting him on the spot is all constantly is not going to do that. And I've realized w with him and with my staff that not everybody wants what I want. And so you, you have to kind of utilize people to the best of their abilities and, and, and be okay and with also, that. Also, yeah, work with who they are, yeah. work with who yeah. they are and, and their, and how they best receive, uh, you know, like their, their guidance and their, and how they best receive instruction. And yeah. no, that's a whole, that's a whole, that's a whole comment. Okay. We should, we'll, we'll speak about that in a second. Yeah. Because that's a whole bunch of lessons in leadership and managing and mm -hmm. and dealing with brick and mortar, you know, brick and mortar during COVID. There's a, there's a lot there. Um, before we completely pivot into those types of lessons, yep. I want to just ask a few more business lessons um, <clears throat> from you building this out. So, I mean, you raised money. Two of the restaurants failed. You raised money again. Mm -hmm. So this is a, this is very and a very expensive venture, Absolutely. right? And I think that a lot of probably parallels in starting any business, yeah. right? Starting a startup, you have to raise money. I, I think it's interesting that after two restaurants failed, even though one was successful and the second one sort of pulled the, the first successful one down, yes, people still um, want to you were still money. able to raise money <laughs> yeah. again. Yeah. 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 People still want yeah, to give you money. Absolutely. Like, absolutely. I, I wish that was okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's absolutely valid. And, and, and obviously a concern. Um, but I, I think, I also yeah. think in going back to what I, the way I shut it down, I think that there's, there's a huge amount of, I, I, it was a strategic in my mind is like, I knew I wasn't done being an entrepreneur. I knew I wasn't done opening restaurants and everything else. And so when I chose to shut down way before I believe anybody else, whatever most people would have, I think that was a large feather in my cap. And I think I actually gained a ton of respect in, in my community in the, that sense that, that I knew things weren't going to work. And so I shut it down. And, and then I also took on all the debt I, I, in that situation. I took on a tremendous amount of debt. Um, I think when I moved back to Saskatchewan, I still, I think I still had $260,000 worth of debt personally for it that I had taken on. Um, and so 
Yeah, it's, you know, I'm always up front with my investors, my my main financial investor, you know, when I first met him, and we sat down and stuff. And he's like, Okay, well, you know, what, what do I get when I when I come into the restaurant and stuff? And I said, good service and good food. That's it. Like, like, there's you don't get anything, you know, you don't get it. You're not going to get a discount. You're not going to get I'm not going to kick people out of their chairs when you arrive. None of that stuff. This is a business you're in bed, you're, you're investing in a business to make money this. So if you're investing in a clothing store, or a tech company or whatever else, you're not walking in there and getting free shit. So you're not going to it's the same way yeah. with the restaurants. And so um, and then he's like, okay, well, when can you promise me I can have the money back or whatever? How long is it going to take? I said, I can't promise you that. This is this is a high risk investment. I'm going to tell you, I'm investing my money in it, and I'm going to show you, and I'm going to show you financials every month. I'm going to do all that kind of stuff like any good you know you know entrepreneur would. Yeah. Um, but there's no promises here. Like this, this is there's no. I, I'm not selling you a dream. You know, I, I'm trying to sell you a business. Whereas I think most. Restaurants and things like that, you are selling a dream. You know, most restaurants don't even have don't even have a, a shareholders agreement. You know, like they're like your people just give people money and they're like, okay, well, here's a hundred grand, and like they don't even have any real shares or documents or they're not formally set up companies even really. They're they're companies, but they're not. There's no structure. They they don't have a shareholders agreement. They don't have yeah. rules. They don't have all that stuff. So it's technically a quite a shady business generally. And so I I learned from Gordon Ramsay's group and from Daniel Balud's group. Uh, I always push my, again, I'm, I'm, I have no education. So when it comes to business, I learned everything from putting myself in this situation. So when we were opening up restaurants for Danielle or for, or for Gordon, whether I was, I was invited or not, I would push myself in meetings. I remember Gordon even looking at me and go, what the fuck are you doing here? And I said, I'm here. I'm just li- listening, you know, and, and in numerous meetings, whether I was invited or not, because I wanted to know how to set up a company. I wanted to know, you know, how these bills were paid or who was doing this or how payroll worked. And even before I was really at that level. And so I was always interested in that. And, and, um, and then again, I've had some good business mentors, um, but raising, raising million dollars, after a couple of losses, it was, was stressful. And, and I was so broke at the time too. And me and my, my son were living in Saskatoon, living in a rented place. And I used, I used, <laughs> I used coupons for the first time in my life, you know, to, to, to buy pickles. We were eating grilled cheese and, and I, and I was buying pickles with coupons and I never thought in my life I'd ever do that or need to do that. But while I was trying to raise this 1.2 million and, and we managed to uh, you know, I managed to find two really good investors and they brought other people into the mix and, and, and I managed to kind of do that. And then from there, um, each restaurant had less investors and now three of our places are just myself and, and, and my business partner and one financial partner. So there's three of us in the restaurants, which I'm, I like the best and that's the way, best way to do it. And, and I think being upfront with investors and, and, and constantly showing the numbers and constantly, you know, it gives them confidence and they don't mess with you anymore. You know, I, I think if you, if you don't report and you don't let people know going, then they're going to want to know what's going on and, and going to do it. So uh, I think honesty is, is always the best policy in, in all respects, especially when it comes to business. No, I, I appreciate it. Agreed. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to understand is from the lessons that you've learned with the two restaurants that were pulled down yep. and, and went bankrupt for lack or didn't work for lack of a better term. Um, what is the checklist that you look for when you're going into something new? What's the checklist of between the the rent and the location and the foot traffic and the menu and the talent and the what is your list that you sort of check off when you open something new? I mean, you mentioned a lot of them. I mean, location is a good one. Rent. Uh, I mean, the, the, your 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 cost are the biggest thing. I, I it's it's tough. I mean, they're 
they're two different things. If I was to walk in and take over a current restaurant, it would be very different. You know, you can kind of um, see where they're at and kind of fix things. But when you're opening up a restaurant from scratch and you're taking most restaurants fail the first year or whatever that 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 scenario is or whatever, I firmly believe it's because of their initial cost, their opening costs. And, and, and that's because you, you get this amount of money and you go over budget by 40%, 50%, sometimes 200% in restaurants. And that has to do with a lot of the time construction and it has to do with plans, uh, permits not getting approved by the city, being behind three months, four months, having people on payroll already. Those are the things that generally kill you. And when you're already behind, um, especially if you're a chef-driven restaurant, it's very hard to be creative when you've got hundreds of people calling you for money and trying and you think you're not going to make payroll and you think you're not going to make that. So that kind of business can go internally go south very quickly right off the hop because of the fact you're under so much financial stress right away. And restaurants are interesting because they're being opened by people that are in hospitality. They don't know what they're doing when it comes to design, when it comes to construction, when it comes to um, timelines of, of dealing with cities and, 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 toilet slope uh, for plumbing, all that kind of stuff that you learn. And so I've been lucky to learn that stuff through opening so many restaurants for so many other people and being in designing meetings. I was in design meetings before I was even the head chef with, with, with Gordon and with Danielle. I would sit there and listen to designers and, and know the fact that you can get that same door handle for fucking 20% less it, we're not designing a home yeah. here. We're designing a commercial restaurant. It needs to be good grade, but it doesn't need to be that because the person holding it doesn't care or know. And so those things, a designer can bankrupt you before you even open. And so I think those are the biggest kind of lessons when it comes to opening up a restaurant and, 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 and staying open. And then when you, when you are now expanding your enterprise, um, you're, you're looking to innovate, you're looking to try new things, mm -hmm. but how do you balance out when you open a new restaurant, how do you balance out innovation versus sticking with like the status quo and what customers already know? So when you bring a new product, I think the restaurant is a product, mm -hmm. the food is a product. Yep. Um, you want to innovate so you don't, you're not just a copy paste of what else is out there, yep. but being a copy paste of what else is out there means there's, there's familiarity. Yep. So how do you balance that? Um, you know, with different concepts, I would say marketing for me is a big thing. I've always done all of our own marketing. I would say like, say Aiden, we'll start with Aiden is that I, we did about 40 videos and this was, I guess, 10, 10 years ago. Now we did a series of videos that were kind of sculpted around making Aiden a story rather than just a restaurant. We did, you know, I did a video on meat. I did a video on fish. I did a, each member of staff that had moved there or that I'd hired. I did a, a video featuring them, where they come from, why are they here? What's, what are they most excited about the restaurant for? Is it the charcuterie program? Is it this? And so we did that for four months leading into the restaurant and, and kind of building up that hype and making it so personable that you kind of felt like you had to come in and in, involved in stuff. And we weren't, and the goal there was with Aiden was to do exactly what you said is kind of give them what they already knew, but we just wanted to make it a bit better. We weren't trying to change them because we were, I'm a hometown kid, but I was coming back the big top chef guy coming to the city. You know, I didn't, I didn't want them to think, Oh, we're going to be stuffing, you know, fancy food down their face and stuff. And so like we open, you know, we have burgers, wings, we have popcorn prawns. We have all the things that ever, all the other chains or people know, but we just do them better and we make them in house. And so it was more about trying to kind of 
make sure that get that message across and make sure that people understood what we were and creating this kind of buzz. Like when you came in, you felt already you're a part of something. So we do that with everything. Um, even like when we opened our Korean Japanese place, you know, we, we actually got my business partner's mom to come over from Korea and she spent like weeks with us making kimchi and doing all this. We filmed all that. We let people know what we're doing this. We're doing it for the right reasons. We're doing all that kind of stuff. And so I think attaching yourself, uh, emotionally to people and getting, giving them a story and, uh, is, is a big thing in our industry. At least it's, it's, um, easy just to put up a you know a menu and, and kind of thing you need to tell a story if you really want to kind of capture people and especially if you want to hit it hard off the start you need to kind of create that buzz mm-hmm. um and again some people i think too you need to be able to try to do some of that yourself restaurants don't make a lot we have our margins are so small and so when you you can't just hire a pr company and say okay here's five thousand dollars a month to do this or or blast that you need to do a lot of that stuff yourself grassroots is the way I, you know what i mean you need to do it yourself and save that money because the, the numbers don't work otherwise you know and and um when you're building out this this one restaurant or this group of restaurants how much do you focus on competition versus how much you just focus on what you're doing yourself very little, um, but I, I think we're a little bit more unique in where we are is that we don't have a lot of competition in the sense of doing what we're doing or our caliber. We do now, I would say over the years, we've had a lot more great independent restaurants open up and stuff, but I, I, I don't worry about too much what other people's doing. I, I'm, I'm, I don't even follow chefs on Instagram. I, I don't really, you know, it's not, it's, it's the same thing as I don't really read cookbooks because I don't really care. It doesn't really change me or doesn't change what I'm necessarily doing. I do love going out and eating and trying new things and going, Oh, I never really kind of thought that, but from where we are, I, I, I don't really think about it, but at the same time we don't oversaturate ourselves. And that's why I've made sure that we don't redo the same thing in the same city. You know, we have kind of a French year, European uh, a Japanese, Korean, and Italian. And then the other say we have a Japanese and Korean and, and, and French again. So we don't want to keep doing the same thing. I would get very, very bored of that too. But, um, and we, 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 yeah, we want people to come back three times a week. We don't want them to come back once a month or just on a birthday. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Blinkist. Now, have you ever felt like you just don't have time to read all the books you want? Blinkist solves that problem. With the Blinkist app, you can understand the most important things you need to know from over 5,500 non-fiction books and podcasts in just 15 minutes. It's perfect for discovering new perspectives, broadening your horizons, sparking exciting conversations, upskilling yourself. I personally love Blinkist because it offers a huge variety of content, 5,500 titles, 27 different categories, powerful insights in just 15 minutes. These bite-sized, top-notch audio experiences make it super easy to fit edutainment into an everyday Super hectic life. So now they also have an incredible new feature called Blinkist Connect. And as a premium Blinkist user, you can share your account with another person of your choice, effectively giving you two premium accounts for the price of one. Imagine sharing your favorite titles with your best friend, your peer, your partner. You both can upskill yourself. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for our audience, Success Story Podcast listeners. You go to Blinkist.com slash Clary to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelt B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Clary to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Clary. 
And now for a limited time, you can even use Blinkist Connect to share your premium account, giving you two premium subscriptions for the price of one. Don't miss this amazing opportunity from Blinkist. Yeah. 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 No, that makes Okay. So, um, all right. I want to, I think that was like, we, we really went into the business of restaurants. I want to speak about some, some leadership lessons that you were sort of, uh, you know, speaking about earlier. Um, let's, let's talk about some things that you've experienced managing teams in kitchens. And now you obviously you're, you're not managing a team every single day. Obviously you have people mm -hmm. that work for you, but let's like leadership lessons from a super high pressure environment. Um, you even mentioned that it's hard to motivate people. It's hard to get people to work. So what are some things that, um, that you do to get the best possible team, get the, the best possible out of that team? Um, maybe just speak to me about your leadership style in the kitchen, because I think everybody knows the high pressure environment, but, yeah. um, not, I've never experienced it. So, yeah, I think, so walk through that. Maybe we can sort of pull some lessons out for people listening. I think my leadership has changed. I mean, it changed over the years and, and has evolved with anything from, from obviously being a chef in Vancouver doing say fine dining. And my leadership was, I would say more Gordon Ramsay style in the sense of like, shut the fuck up and do just basically do exactly what I'm asking you to do and, yeah. and do it. And and there's no if, ands or buts. And if you don't like it, there's kind of the door. And that's, I think when you're at a very specific height of your, you know, career or at a certain place in a restaurant, you can get away with that. That's kind of borrowed time and it's not real leadership. It's essentially, you know, you're doing whatever you're, you're just kind of a, a you know, doing what you're doing. But uh, again, going back to my son, you know, <clears throat> and learning and seeing people, I guess for more, when you start doing more casual food, when I started doing more casual food, you, I couldn't really, you can't really keep that type of an intensity going all the time because it's not that intense. And then you're just an asshole. And that's kind of what I, I kind of figured out that I was just kind of turning into an asshole and I wasn't that great of a leader anymore, you know? And, and, and so, um, I, I took that to heart and, and, and I think what a big thing was that I, I always had people that stuck with me a very long time. And, and I think it's because I generally would take an interest in their life. You know, I always, always, even though I, I always encourage people to take time off. Like if you want to, if you have a family thing, I'm going to make it work for you. If you want to take a holiday, I'm going to make it work for you because you need to have a life outside of these walls because it's only sustainable for a certain amount of a period of time. Um, these days, because I'm not the chef in any of my restaurants, my role really is um, a motivator and someone that goes. So I go around from restaurant to restaurant, checking with everybody from, you know, and, and obviously knowing every single person's name, which is not that difficult. I have only five restaurants, but you would be surprised, you know, um, knowing the dishwasher's name, knowing, you know, everything, checking with the dishwasher, you know, making sure that they have what they need. You know, we've done every, I've done everything from like, when we've had a dishwasher that's down and out doing like a furniture drive where I go around and pick up a bunch of furniture and make sure that they have things for home and clothes for the kids and all those kind of little things that I think is maybe not necessarily a, a, a boss kind of thing, but it's a, it's building a culture within our restaurants to know that if shit goes wrong in your life, you have people that are there for you. And, and I think that is actually yeah. very important in the hospitality, hospitality industry, maybe not so much in other industries because we, we have a lot of transient people in our, in our industry and a lot of people that don't necessarily have education. They don't necessarily have things to fall back on. And it's, it's, 
it's easier to try to fix a problem that they're having at home or in their life than them just leaving and trying to hire somebody else. It, I found over the years, it's easier to try to kind of nurture those relationships and try to make sure that you can set things up for them to for them to succeed is a lot easier than saying, screw it, I'll find somebody else. Um, because you, you get those long lasting kind of relationships. I hired a guy one time, worst interview I've ever had in my entire life. Like I've never, I, 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 part, I partly hired him because it was so bad. He couldn't even, he wouldn't look me in the eye. He was kind of like, Oh, all over the place. And, and I, and I came downstairs and it was like, Holy shit. How's that? I said, I hired him. And they're like, everyone was like shocked. I was like, what? And he ended up being with us for eight years. He just finished with us like six months ago. And he was a great employee. He came every single day. He wasn't, he wasn't naturally talented. He wasn't everything, but he would work his ass off. He'd do his eight hours a day and he would go home. And so I have over the years started to value that almost a lot more than that really talented person that was, you know, ego. Yeah. You, you invest in people and, and generally, but that being said, you also set yourself up for a lot of disappointment and, and, and especially in this industry as well as that people do when you invest a ton of time and energy and everything in them and then they necessarily leave without notice. Notice these days is not even a thing. I don't know what it is like in other things, but people just don't give notice anymore. They just don't show up or they just say, well, I'm not coming back and, and that's kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I've, I've kind of learned that if you can invest in people and stuff and try to create opportunities for them and, and, if they know that you actually are generally there for them in the corner, uh, from a, from a personal side, then it, it definitely holds a lot of weight in, in this industry. Uh, but from building a team standpoint, I just check in and make sure I, I, my goal is with all my chefs. So I have five chefs. My goal is to make, to, to take care of all the th- stuff that stops them from doing what they, what they love and which is cooking. I try to make sure that they can spend as much time in the kitchen. They don't have to deal with too much payroll or too much paperwork or too much everything else. I want them focusing on the cooks and focusing on the food and doing what they love. And when they want to be an entrepreneur and grow from there, I'll teach them or I'll help them move up. Um, but, um, yeah, I just want them to keep doing their job and, and, and not have to kind of worry about that. And, and, and morale, I, I honestly, I feel like that's kind of my, my job now is kind of keeping people's morale up and, and, um, and then teaching them about the numbers, you know, you, you kind of have to come and tell them that, that they're not doing it right. And then tell them how, how to do it right and how to explain and, and then kind of, and then prop them up. Um, people, I, I, I associate the kitchen and being a father so much is that um, especially a young cook or, or in the middle of pressure, like you said, like if you're in the middle of pressure and you're, you're being a leader and everything is, I find, you know, I tell people I'm a great delegator. I'm probably better at delegating than anything, you know, it is, is that, and it's the follow-up. Super, super it's so, important. it's so important. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a, it's a tool that you can really utilize. It's not laziness. It's, it's controlling it. It's, it's a manager of, of getting everyone the best out of everyone and knowing what their limitations. So I would ask them to do something and then I give them a couple minutes or whether a couple days, whatever, depending on the task then I follow up. Okay. You know, this is coming up or do you have this kind of done? Okay. And then, so I usually give two to three follow-ups just like you would your kid. And then, so when the discipline does come, you've got those. And I also like in my, some of my chefs laughing all the time, cause I'll look them right in the eyes of like, yes, you're agreeing with me. We're having a conversation here. So there's no way you're going to not, when I come to you two days later, remember when we talked about that, there's no way you can say we didn't talk about this because we're looking into each other's eyes. Yeah. I'm basically holding your hand going, this is what we're going to do. And so I think when you give people um, the opportunity 
to, to do well. And to, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, a lot harder when you say you do this and you show up and you start yelling why it's not done. And you, you need to follow up and you need to give people structure. And so I, I find uh, structure is, is a big thing and, and systems and rules and all those kind of things. You need to put those in place for people to grow. And you're also, you know, you provide a lot of support. You remove the blockers, you remove excuses, yep. you remove any reason as to why they, they couldn't. Exactly. Right? There's, there's zero excuse. But that's your job, too. It's like it wouldn't be fair for you to impose uh, all these all these things onto them if you didn't give them the best environment exactly. to thrive either. That's, ex- that's well, much that's well put than, than I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> you're, good. you're good. You're good. Um, and I'm curious, like through i mean we've gone through covid mm-hmm. we're now going through recession inflation how does that impact the people that you work with how does that impact your restaurants you even spoke about mentality towards work towards grinding it out so that's one thing but also for a while the restaurant probably couldn't have people working inside it yeah. for a period of time right so that impacts your bottom line i don't know if you furloughed or not but if you lay people off but then also now we're going right into um we're going right into a, a People think we're going to a recession. I mean, in expensive cities, it's probably very hard with uh, with minimum wage. So this all impacts you. It's all impacts the people that you're working yeah. with. So walk me through how you've managed some of this. Slowly, you know, we when COVID hit, we were on we were on a really good trajectory when COVID hit, and I I'd spent me and my partner had spent kind of six months prior. It was almost like we somehow knew that this was kind of, kind of coming, but it was more just like I I. I got really pissed off one day because numbers just weren't again weren't working or things just didn't seem that good so i went on a tear for about six months me and my business partner renegotiating everything from pos stuff to credit card fees to everything like linen we went through every single cost item and we we got it to dialed in as much as possible and then COVID hit boom like right kind of there and then I feel like if we wouldn't have done that that massive house cleaning, we would have been a lot more in a lot worse of a situation. Um, but because we did that and we were really, really quite tight, you know, we had a good opportunity to, and all of our restaurants came out fine. And, you know, we obviously took the subsidies and did all the programs and, and, and all that kind of stuff, which, mm-hmm. you know, if you didn't, you probably wouldn't be alive anyway, or, or you wouldn't be in business. I mean, um, so for us, you know, it was about keeping our staff and keeping people employed and, and, and trying to just, minimize our hurt to get through it and and that's what i think everyone was doing for the early part but then once we realized this is a long-term thing um then we had to kind of start kind of changing kind of our ideas and kind of and stuff and and finding other ways to cut costs and make money um it's the worst case scenario to be honest with you like the pandemic and and, and for the hospitality industry i would say hospitality got hit the hardest it always gets hit the hardest as soon as a recession hits the first thing you do is stop going out for dinner you know it's it's an easy thing to cut you can make dinner you can buy cheaper stuff you can do whatever when a pandemic hits you know most businesses could still some businesses thrived i i have friends that did way better in the pandemic than they've ever done but you know, nickel and diamond burgers and doing all these packups and doing all these things. And, you know, everyone's like, Oh, why don't you do an online cooking class? Once you do this and that, and you pack up these things or, or order boxes where people can make food at home and stuff like that. And you're like, it, it's just, but it honestly, it's just a bunch of busy work that doesn't make money, you know? And so I, I, I did all the costing and did all the analysis and we chose not to do any of that stuff. And I, and the people that I saw doing it were losing their money. I chose from a personal yeah. standpoint, I used I used the pandemic time better than I could have ever imagined. I became healthier, happier. Um, I did a lot of 
you know, mental kind of growth. I became a triathlete. I trained 15, oh, 16 hours a week now. That's very good. You know, I, I did, you know, I, I wanted to use my time, use this time. It was almost like a gift of when do you ever get to kind of really reset and really look at everything. And that's what we did. Yeah. So I, I looked at that as a very positive period. Um, our cities specifically, or our restaurants in our cities really rely on business tourism. Saskatchewan, like I, I love Saskatchewan. We all, you know, like this, but nobody's coming for a holiday in Saskatoon. You know what I mean? It's very rare, <laughs> you know, like, it's like, I always say people like, oh, I've never been to Saskatchewan. I'm like, yeah, generally if someone gets married or dies is usually when you come, if you don't from there. Yeah. And so we need people coming in for potash and for oil and for gas and for agriculture. We need those people coming in because from Monday to Thursday, you know, local's good, but it's not going to, it's not going to get me 150 people in one restaurant and 60 in the, you know, I can't fill all my restaurants on, on regular Wednesday business. I need people from Toronto, Calgary, Edmonton coming in yeah. that are going to have a bottle of wine and, and, and have three or four courses. And so that is starting to come back. And so we're, we're just adjusting, um, renegotiating leases. I renegotiated numerous of our leases to, to a percentage rent. You know, my, you made, made the, you know, the, the, the pitches like you can either have me as a long-term tenant or I can be out of here in a year because I'm not going to be able to pay your bills yeah. or you, by, by the way, I want to just tell you like, none of this is meant to be elegant. It's just meant to be real. Yeah. That's, that's really what I, I know that this is a very difficult, but you're in hospitality and it's interesting how people navigate it, yeah. even though it's not fun. And no, it's, it's and terrible. Unicorns. It's terrible. And, and, and when you're standing there and you're nickeling and diming and you're, and, and, the, and the worst bit about all this, all of our costs are going are going skyrocketing during all this time too. Like all of our food yeah. costs, our liquor costs, our labor costs, our minimum wages going up. Um, people are choosing to be on public uh, government programs rather than come to work even uh, as well, and especially when we're first coming back. Um, and then again, uh, to go back to our restaurants, we're, we're full service restaurants. Like we're, we're concept restaurants. When you come to us, you're coming because uh, you get greeted a certain way because we have nice bathrooms because we have great food. So when you can only, well, you know, we're at a point where at sometimes we can only see 25 to 50% of the restaurant. Do you, do you really want to come and pay $48 for a beautiful steak and sit in an empty, have mostly empty room with no ambiance going, everyone wearing masks and, and, and cleaning everything? It's not a vibe. It's a, it's a vibe, but it's not a vibe you want. And it's not a vibe you want to come yeah. in and, and have. And so we struggle to try to create that ambiance still. So it was very challenging, a very, very, very challenging period. Um, and we, we definitely lost you, a lot of people think- in the industry. No, do you think that do you think that uh, going forward hospitality will change? Like, do you are you going to structure your businesses and your restaurants different going forward, or or is it going to slowly morph back into what it used to be? Um, I think we're I think we're always going to be more efficient because of because of it. I think you know be, we've we've been forced to look at the numbers more often and all the numbers and costs and and. And I think too, the, the only very only positive I think that has come out of this is the fact that everyone with the inflation and everything going up so much and cost of goods going up, this is the first time in I think history that I've ever been in the industry that actual the general public has realized that how much more everything costs. And so we can't, you know, when we raise the menus, you generally are getting a bit more support of raising the menu prices rather than being, you know, a dollar more for chicken wings or whatever it is. I can go yeah. make these at home. Well, then you're like, we'll go make them at home. But this is just what it costs now. Like it, for you to go buy a steak in the grocery store, a decent steak, it's going to cost you $8, $9 to $20 for, for a steak, whatever cut that is. But 
it's the same as a restaurant. So I think people are starting to understand a little bit more of the cost. Um, we just have to keep raising our prices. And that's, I've raised my prices more in the last 12 months than I've ever had in my whole career. Like every month basically wow. having to go up because the number at the end of the day, if the numbers don't work, you can say, Oh, people are going to stop coming. But if they start, it doesn't really matter. You, if you keep serving food, you're breaking even or losing on then it, it, you, you might as well have less guests and make it and still they, they make might as money. well just not come anyway. So you got it. Yeah. 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 So, um, but we're, we're, we're happy, you know, we're optimistic of, of this year. We still did okay last year. And I think, um, this year is going to be different. Caterings have come back, which is a big part of our, our, you know, one of our revenue streams is mm-hmm. weddings, corporate events, all that kind of stuff. Whereas, you know, for two and a half years, no company was willing or wanting to do anything like that. Marriages, you know, all the, all the weddings got scaled down or doing different stuff. And so we see that business coming back, thankfully, because that's, um, you know, it's a lot of our bread and butter. If you had to pick one lesson that you've learned over your entire career and tell it to your younger self, what would that lesson be? It could span food, restaurant, business, anything. I think the message I always tell myself, I, I got asked the question, if you were a, if you were a book, what would the title be? And I said, shut up and listen. You know, it's probably is a good message, I think, for any entrepreneur sometimes. I, I, I think, I, as I mentioned, ambition can kind of, can kind of get in your way. Um, but a lesson that I, I feel like I, I learned early on, um, and I stick to all the time is just, is no, numbers don't lie. You know, you, you have to, as much as you want something, if it's not working, uh, financially, it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to be, it's not a business. It's, it's, a, it's a pet project or it's something that's just going to keep sucking up money. So, um, I think you have to be realistic and be mature enough to, to, and also just admit when you're wrong, if you're wrong, you're wrong. Uh, you know, I, I get taught that all the time from, from my cooks, from my staff, from other mentors and stuff, you know, I, I think there's great power in, in admitting when you're wrong and, and admitting, uh, that you need to learn some more stuff still. No, very good. Okay. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to close this out and get some places, uh, some links and some socials, but before, um, I pivot, um, was there anything that you wanted to speak about teach over, um, to the audience, anything that's top of mind, either it could be lessons for young entrepreneurs, it could be where you want to go in the future goals that you want to set. So floor is yours. Um, so just take a second, close it out, and then I'll do like a couple last questions. Sure. Yeah, I, I didn't, I guess I didn't really think about a closing thing, but I, I from just from my standpoint, I, <laughs> you don't have to think <laughs> from my standpoint is, you know, uh, I think, and it just seems such a cliche these days, but I honestly balance, I, I always make fun of the whole balance thing, but as I've got older, I need, I really need to have balance and I really need to have other things outside of work. You know, I, I need to have, I, you know, before we did this, I ran, you know, I ran 15 kilometers, you know, I, I if I, there's, that makes me more happy than almost anything. Cause I feel, I just feel healthy. I feel happy. I want, it makes me want to get out of bed. It makes me want to go. So I, I think you have to have other outlets. You have to be, uh, you know, focused on what you're doing, but you also need to have outlets and you also have to have, um, some, some happiness in your life. It can all be. And I, I, I guess maybe yeah, my, yeah. So my, my side is I, I came from, again, such an aggressive, like it was it, the the more miserable you were, it was almost like the, the better chef you were. It was like more, it was almost like badges of honor. And I'm like, I think it's pretty good to smile. It's being mad all the time is exhausting. So I, I, I kind of celebrate just being happy and, and kind of, and, 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 and love the people you work with, you know, they, they're, and as an entrepreneur, you know, uh, you have to, you have to 
keep them accountable, but at the same time, you've got to create a place where they want to be and, and, and they're coming, they're getting out of bed every morning for you and for your business. So appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's very good. Um, if people want to connect with you, learn more about your restaurants, go visit your restaurants. Yeah. If they're, if they're up in Canada right now, um, website, social, where should they go? Uh, yeah, I'm on uh, my Instagram is, uh, at chef Dale McKay, um, sorry, at chef Dale McKay and then grassroots restaurant group, uh, com. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, and then I asked this question to everyone to close this mm-hmm. out. So over the course of, you know, you've had an incredible career, you've worked with some of the best chefs um, in the world, you've built your own empire of restaurants. After all of this, and you've alluded to it before, but what does success mean to you now? Um, I think... I don't want to say financially, but but financial, I think, I, I, I think when you... Being able to work less and is is success for me. You know, being able to have the yeah. ability to work eight hours a day and really use those eight hours to do better than working sixteen and being exhausted all the time. And, and I think you can only get that with with somewhat financial success and or at least strength or stability, um, consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, would be was, yeah, I would be say. <laughs> I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. 
it's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E.com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers, they filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed 
survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 